But uh, we're on to Nehemiah. We've been going through books of the Bible in, in 20 minutes, and uh, we've reached uh, Nehemiah. Now, if you look for books on Nehemiah or on Amazon, here are some of the titles that you'll find. Nehemiah, Becoming a Godly Leader. Rebuild the Walls, Lessons in Leadership from Nehemiah. The Nehemiah Factor, 16 Vital Keys to Living Like a Missional Leader, or Leadership for Greatness, Leadership Lessons from the Book of Nehemiah. But I want to say this evening that the Book of Nehemiah is not really a leadership manual for the church. And I've heard it preached like that, I've heard it at the Christian Union that I went to when I was in Lancaster, people came and preached it week on week as those lessons in leadership. And I've been surprised by some good guys this week uh, who've taken it this way uh, and preached it this way. Now, I'm sure there are some really good things to learn about leadership in the book of Nehemiah, as there are in other books. And it kind of works okay until you get passages like this in Nehemiah 13, 25, where it says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them swear in the name of their God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourself. That's not really a model for Christian leadership. You cannot bully people into godliness. But it does focus as a book on the leadership of the nation. It's showing us what it was like leading the nation. Last time we had the sort of priestly side, well this is like the kingly side, the leadership. But as one commentator puts it, Nehemiah is much more about, uh, it is about leadership. However, uh, inspiring that leadership, sorry, Nehemiah is about much more than leadership. However inspiring that leadership might be. In the end, this book leaves us with a leader's failures more than his successes. Rather than focusing mainly on human faithfulness to God, the book of Nehemiah shows God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. This divine faithfulness is rooted in God's covenant promises. That's what this book is about. It's about God's faithfulness rather than our faithfulness. Now we saw last week that this was originally part of a longer book combining Ezra and Nehemiah. It's written in the first person from Nehemiah's perspective, though it's probably a later author who combined Nehemiah's first-hand accounts and put it with Ezra. The book takes place over a period of about 20 years, even though the action seems in sort of small pockets. And it's probably a few years after the events of the book of Ezra. Ezra does make an appearance, makes a cameo, um, uh, which uh, is why this book was historically called Two Ezra, rather than the other one being called One uh, Nehemiah. So what's it about? Just two points this evening. Just two points this evening. Nehemiah, the storyline, that's our first point. Nehemiah, the storyline. Being written in the first person invites us to focus on the story of Nehemiah as the person as he goes through. He's a man of bold faith with a big heart for God's glory and for God's people. As the, begin, as the book begins, he's a cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes in the city of Susa. A cupbearer was the guy who brought drinks to the king. And he had to be a very trusted man. Because a lot of the ways that they used to kill people in those days was by poison. So a cupbearer was somebody who had to be completely trusted. He had to be an uncorruptible person. Someone who could be trusted absolutely by the king. And in that sense, to be cupbearer was actually quite a high honour of saying you are a very, very faithful man. Well, he's there in that position, and when he hears from his brother, his brother's been on a trip to Jerusalem, and he hears about what's happening in Jerusalem. He hears that the walls haven't been built, and it just looks an absolute state. So he weeps, he fasts, and he prays. 
He confesses his sin and the sin of his people to God. And from his prayer, it's clear that he understands what's going on. He understands why they were sent into exile, which is why he's over there. And he understands what it is, is going to be to live to, uh, to, live to be faithful uh, to God. So he makes up his mind to speak to the king and ask him for permission to go to Jerusalem and to organise the repairing of the walls. Now that sounds simple, but it's not so simple. The king then was the son of Xerxes, sometimes called Ahasuerus. And as with Esther, if you remember the story of Esther, one could not just waltz up to the king and ask something. Actually, if you did that, you risked your life. So, he decides what he's going to do. Next time he brings the king his wine, he goes in with a sad face on. Now, that might not sound much, but apparently in those days, people in power, it might not be just those days, people in power like to sort of keep a bubble around them, where everyone just told them nice things. So to go in with a sad face was actually quite a dangerous thing, because, oh, who would, who would be sad in front of the king? And as if to highlight this, the king immediately spots that he is sad. So, uh, the king speaks to him. Now, bear in mind, his answer to having a sad cupbearer might have been to have a dead cupbearer. That might be his answer to what was going on. But because, as Nehemiah says, the hand of his God was upon him, the king asks him why he's sad. He explains the situation in Jerusalem, and the king grants him his request to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. But even his request could have got him in trouble as he speaks to the king. Walls, in our days, you, sort of, you don't really have that many walled cities. You've got York. Don't worry, it's just the, uh, the uh, dishwasher, I think. Um, in our days, walls are just something pretty to walk around, aren't they? Like in York. But in those days, it was a matter of defence. So a city with walls was a city with protection. But Jerusalem was supposed to be under the protection of the Persian Empire. Why would they need walls? Who were they supposed to be protecting themselves from? The empire at this point went all the way from Egypt to India. That's how big this empire was at this point. Who was going to attack them? If they were part of an empire that was so big and so strong, they were in no danger from outsiders. No walls, no problem. But a city with walls is one that can defend itself. And it's also one that can try and go it alone which is what he's accused of later on, trying to make it so that they could defend themselves against the Persians. But, as he said, his hand of his God was upon him, and the king grants his request. And he heads to Jerusalem with the king's blessing, but not everyone is happy when he gets there. <laughs> Nearby governors that we have mentioned in our reading, Sambalat, a Horonite, probably a descendant of the Moabites, Tobiah, the Ammonite, they're both unhappy that he's come to help out the Jews. They're quite happy to see the Jews humiliated in this way. The Moabites and the Amorites are under Persian control as well, but they're happy to see Israel in such a sort of downtrodden, undefendable state. The Moabites and the Ammonites are still being, as they were, the traditional enemies of Israel. So he spends three days in Jerusalem, and then goes out and inspects the wall by night, so that no one knows what he's thinking about what he's going to do. And then, once he's seen the situation, he goes public. And he faces the scorn and derision of the local governors, who accuse him of attempting to start a rebellion. Nehemiah, as you'll see, this is the way Nehemiah goes, tells them to get lost, basically. He says, you've got no part in Jerusalem, you've got no say on what happens here. We'll see that Nehemiah is quite a direct man. You might have already got to do with that with some of the things that we've heard already. Nehemiah gets to work, and uh, gets the work started on the gates. 
chapter 3 helpfully tells you who did what gate. So if you ever wondered, there you go, chapter 3. But when the work is started, the local governors get even more annoyed and start to ridicule them as they build. Nehemiah throws a prayer in the middle of that account. He does so throughout, asking God to bring the taunts of them back on their own heads. There's a plot by some new locals to throw them into confusion, and Nehemiah prays and sets a guard. It's a bit like Oliver Cromwell's charge, trust God and keep your powder dry. He does both, and the plot comes to nothing. People come from outside of Jerusalem to help. So the enemies start to threaten the villages around Jerusalem to try and make them go back, to try and make them stop the work. And there's pressure on the men to return home to defend their families. The enemy just keeps throwing things at them again and again and again. But Nehemiah again convinces them to stay. From that point on, as we see in chapter 4, Nehemiah arms the builders. At points they have a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. And Nehemiah gets the leaders to stand with the builders as they build. The leaders are there, they're on the line as well. Everybody has a part to play in this. And there they are solidly together, day and night. They don't even change their clothes, we're told there, in chapter 4. It all sounds good, but not all is well. The people start coming to Nehemiah complaining that they've got nothing to eat. Now if you remember back to some of the other accounts and books that we've been looking at, that might sound familiar. Uh, the people moaning about not having anything to eat. Uh, also, at this time, it's, it, it's for different reasons. So they're moaning about food, but here it's because they've taken out loans that they can't repay, and the interest is crippling them. And they're working on land that's not been given to them, so they're having to pay rent on the land that they have. And when Nehemiah hears about this, he responds in anger. He gets angry about it. He takes counsel. Interestingly, Nehemiah says takes counsel with himself. Again, you sort of get a picture of the guy. Uh, he goes, goes for advice to himself and decides to bring charges against the nobles and officials. He forces them to give up the land that is right near peoples and to stop charging interests. And in a rare victory in the Bible, they actually do. It's very rare as we go through that people actually obey. Nehemiah then tells them, uh, sorry, tells you how he gave his food allowance to the people the whole time he was governor in the land. And he prays that God would remember him for all the good that he's done to this people. I've always thought that sounds a bit exasperated. Lord, remember all the good I've done for this people. Uh, they sound, uh, he sounds quite exasperated, but I think they sound quite exasperating as well as we go through. By this time the wall is up, but there's no actual gates in place. The local governors sense that this is near the end, so they go for Nehemiah himself. They try to get him to meet on a plane nearby, but it's a plot. They're going to kill him or do something to him on the uh, on the field. Nehemiah won't go, so when that doesn't work, they write him a letter accusing him of treason. They say, what you're trying to do is set yourself up as king. Now, it's a total lie, but they're trying to make out that Nehemiah is somehow compromised. That Nehemiah is, is, is in it for himself. And if they can get the king to hear that and believe it, then that's it for Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah prays. As we see throughout, that's where he goes. That doesn't work, so next they decide that uh, there's a a plot to send an assassin by night. And a man called Shemaiah tells him and counsels him to go and hide in the temple, presumably in the inner parts. And again, Nehemiah turns to prayer. He doesn't know what to do, but it turns out actually Nehemiah realises that this is a plot to see him dead. 
They know that if he goes in the inner parts, he's not supposed to go there, and he'll die. So Nehemiah avoids their attack. And finally, after 52 days, the walls are completed. The nations are afraid, uh, probably because there's actually a builder that's finished on time. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that takes a miracle, doesn't it? But it does actually say when they built the walls, when the builders had finished, they knew that God's hand was in that. The nations were aware that God had been at work. So now that the walls are up, Nehemiah tries to sort out uh, the people in the city. He counts the nobles and the people. And in chapter 8, he gathers them together in a square in Jerusalem. And Ezra now makes his cameo. He comes in and he reads the book of the law to the people from early morning until noon. But the priests stand by and help the people understand it. Let me read it to you. Chapter 8, verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the meaning. That's basically what we do, isn't it? That's what we do every Sunday. Somebody reads the Bible, and then somebody stands up and explains the sense of it. That's what we do at Bible study groups. That's what we do on a Sunday morning. And the people here start by worshipping, but they end by weeping. The Levites have to stop them crying, because they say, well, this is supposed to be a happy day. We're supposed to rejoice. And they do by the end, so 8 verse uh, 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and sent portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They're actually really excited to understand the Bible. That's a great model for church, isn't it? You see, worshipping, weeping and rejoicing all in one day, and all in response to the word of God. And the people start to change as a result. They keep the Feast of Booths which it just sort of drops in that this has not been kept since Joshua's day. So the whole time we've been reading since Joshua, they've not done this. And Joshua's only the generation after them where they've been told to do it. And day by day, Ezra reads from the law, and the priests explain it to the people as they keep the Feast of Booths. In chapter 9, the Levites lead the people in an extended prayer of confession, going right back to the book of Genesis. They confess the sin that's brought them into exile. And they acknowledge God's grace to bring them out. And they ask for God then to act in their current situation in light of all that he's done before. They bind themselves to keeping the covenant and they dedicate the wall. But as the book ends, there are still issues. Nehemiah goes away for a while, thinking job done. And he comes back to find out that the priests have given one of the rooms used for the offerings to one of the local governors. Nehemiah gets angry and throws all the furniture out, tells you, and then gives it back in service to God. He also finds out the Levites haven't been paid, and so have had to go back to the fields to work, and he has to sort that out. He finds that people have been doing work on the Sabbath, or letting other people come in and do work on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah shuts the gates on a Friday night and won't let the tradesmen in. Tradesmen in. There are still foreign wives to deal with. Uh, despite the reforms in the book of Ezra, even in the priesthood. And this is where Ezra starts to rip out the hair of the people and chases people away. Nehemiah, all the way through this, does his best, but Jerusalem is a mess, actually, still at the end of Nehemiah. And as soon as Nehemiah's back is turned, it goes back to what it was. And Nehemiah just keeps losing his temper all the way through the book. And the book finishes with a prayer, Remember me! Oh my God, but good. It's as though he's like, I've done all this stuff for this people. Please remember what I've done, Lord. So that's the story of the book. But what about Christ and us in Nehemiah? This is our second point, a bit briefer. 
What about us and Christ? Well, Christ in Nehemiah is trickier than you'd think. Nehemiah is not quite a Christ figure. He's not a son of David, and he's not a king. That's one of the things they don't have a king at this point. There are no promises to Nehemiah. There are promises elsewhere to his contemporary Zerubbabel, who's a descendant of David. Though Zerubbabel doesn't do much, but actually Nehemiah goes on to do quite a lot. But Nehemiah, nowhere in the Bible, is sort of held up as a Christ figure. So it's better to think of the book as showing us the need for what Christ brings, a new heart and the Holy Spirit. The book really shows us a man leading a people who most of the time don't want to be led. He has to resort to threats and hair pulling and violence, because most of the time the people don't want to obey God. And by the end of the book, we're left longing for the fulfilment of Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them and I shall write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. But as we finish Nehemiah, that's not where the people are at. That's not to say that there are positive things. Looking at Nehemiah as a human being, living for God, one thing does stand out that's positive. Prayer. Nehemiah, all the way through the book, is always praying. As he plans, he prays. As he faces opposition, he prays. Even as he writes, recounting the events, he prays as he's writing. It's like he can't stop. We get whole prayers recorded in the book, prayers of repentance, uh, prayers asking God to to work. And this is something we're supposed to take notice of and take to heart. Prayer is at the heart of what is happening. But just like uh, being careful about reading Christ into Nehemiah, we need to be careful about reading ourselves into Nehemiah too. Why would we see ourselves as Nehemiah, the hero in the book? So often aren't we the stubborn people who won't be led? who make our leaders pull their own hair out, maybe they're not our hair out. So often we don't act like spirit-filled people. So often we don't use our new hearts. We should be striving to be those people who obey from the heart, who show the best of what we see in Nehemiah, who hear the words and let it affect us deep down and prompt us to action. So it's not going to be the latest book on Amazon that we need, really. What we need is the word of God to act in our new hearts by his spirit that he's caused to dwell in us. Actually, that's what Nehemiah points us forward to. And that will make us better leaders and followers and fathers and sons and daughters and sisters and mothers and workers and carers and children. So let's pray that God would do that work in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Father, thank you for the way that it points us forward to the Lord Jesus and all that he brings to us. Father, thank you that uh, even though Nehemiah wasn't perfect, Father, he was willing to stand up for you. And Father, he came to you in prayer. Father, pray that we would learn those lessons, but not forget, Father, that we too can uh, uh, need those those new hearts. Father, we need to live in line with your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.